Section 30 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Theology of the Intellect and That of the Feelings, Article 2, Part 1. Footnote. Remarks on the Princeton Review, Volume 22, Number 4, Article 7, by Edwards A. Park, Abbot Professor in Andover Theological Seminary. Bibliotheca Sacra, January, 1851, Article 9. Princeton Review, April, 1851. End footnote. We are really sorry to find that Professor Park has been so much pained by our review of his convention sermon. His reply evinces a great deal of wounded feeling. The transparent veil which he has thrown over his acerbities only renders them more noticeable. A homely face may pass in a crowd without attracting much attention, but if its unfortunate owner attempt to conceal it by a gauze mask, every eye will be turned upon him. He had better put the mask in his pocket and let his face pass for what it is. Some allowance must be made for our author. When a man delivers a discourse with great éclat, it must, we presume, be very painful to find that the reading public does not confirm the verdict of the admiring audience. This is a very common occurrence. Instead, however, of being satisfied with the obvious solution of this familiar fact, the author, if a politician, is very apt to attribute such unfavourable judgment to party spirit, and if a preacher to theological bigotry. We are the more disposed to be charitable in the present case because, in our small way, we have had a somewhat similar experience. We wrote a review which we intended to make a model of candour and courtesy. To avoid the danger of misrepresentation, we determined, instead of giving disconnected extracts of the discourse reviewed, to present a full analysis of it, as far as possible in the author's own words, and to guard against discourtesy, we resolved to abstain from all personal remarks and to confine ourselves to the theory under discussion. We flattered ourselves that we had been tolerably successful as to both these points. Partial friends confirm us in our self-complacency. Even opponents, though dissenting from our opinion of the sermon, acknowledged the courtesy of the review. Judge then of our chagrin to learn that it is a tissue of misrepresentations filled with arguments ad captandum vulgus and ad invidiam, unblushing in its misstatements. Footnote. Professor Park says repeatedly his reviewer does not blush to say this, does not blush to say this, and does not blush to say that. End footnote. Violating not only the rules of logic, but the canons of fair criticism, and even the laws of morals, the offspring of theological bigotry and sectional jealousy, etc., etc., All this may be accounted for in various ways, except so far as the imputation of unworthy motives is concerned. That we are at a loss to explain. Does not Professor Park know in his heart that it would be a matter of devout thanksgiving to all old-school men to be assured that their doctrines were taught at Andover? Does he suppose there is a man among them capable, from motives conceivable or inconceivable, of wishing that error should be there inculcated? If he can cherish such suspicions, he is of all Christian men the most to be pitied. Having failed so entirely to understand the sermon, we shall not be presumptuous enough to pretend to understand the reply. It is not our purpose, therefore, to review it in detail. We must let it pass and produce its legitimate effect, whatever that may be. 
We take a deep interest, however, in the main point at issue, which is nothing more or less than this. Is that system of doctrine embodied in the creeds of the Lutheran and Reformed churches, in its substantial and distinctive features, true as to its form as well as to its substance? Are the propositions therein contained true as doctrines, or are they merely intense expressions, true not in the mode in which they are there presented, but only in a vague, loose sense which the intellect would express in a very different form? Are these creeds to be understood as they mean, and do they mean what they say, or is allowance to be made for their freedom, abatement of their force, and their terms to be considered antiquated, and their spirit only as still in force? For example, when these creeds speak of the imputation of Adam's sin, is that to be considered as only an intense form of expressing, quote, the definite idea that we are exposed to evil in consequence of his sin, end quote. Footnote. Sermon, page 535. In the following article, the references to Professor Park's sermon are to the edition of it contained in the Bibliotheca Sacra for July 1850, and those to his remarks on the Princeton Review are to the Bibliotheca Sacra for January 1851. That the pointed issue is what is stated in the text will be made more apparent in the sequel, for the present it may be sufficient to refer to the following passages. In giving his reasons for the title of the sermon, Professor Park says, quote, Secondly, the title was selected as a deferential and charitable one. The representations which are classified under the theology of feeling are often sanctioned as the true theology by the men who delight most in employing them. What the sermon would characterize as images, illustrations, and intense expressions, these men call doctrines. We call one system of theology rational or liberal simply because it is so called by its advocates. Much more, then, may we designate by the phrase emotive theology those representations which are so tenaciously defended by multitudes as truth fitted both for the feeling and the judgment. End quote. Remarks, page 140. Quote, a creed, if true to its original end, should be in sober prose, should be understood as it means, and mean what it says, should be drawn out with a discriminating, balancing judgment, so as to need no allowance for its freedom, no abatement of its force, and should not be expressed in antiquated terms, lest men regard its spirit as likewise obsolete. It belongs to the province of the analyzing, comparing, reasoning intellect, and if it leaves this province for the sake of intermingling the phrases of an impassioned heart, it confuses the soul, it awakes the fancy and the feelings to disturb the judgment, it sets a believer at variance with himself by perplexing his reason with metaphors and his imagination with logic. It raises feuds in the church by crossing the temperaments of men and taxing one party to demonstrate similes, another to feel inspired by abstractions. Hence the logomachy, which has always characterized the defense of such creeds. The intellect, no less than the heart, being out of its element, wanders through dry places seeking rest and finding none. Men are thus made uneasy with themselves and therefore acrimonious against each other. The imaginative zealot does not understand the philosophical explanation, and the philosopher does not sympathize with the imaginative style of the symbol and as they misunderstand each other, they feel their weakness, and to be weak is to be miserable, and misery not only loves but also makes company, and thus they sink their controversy into a contention and their dispute into a quarrel. 
nor will they ever find peace until they confine their intellect to its rightful sphere, and understand it according to what it says, and their feeling to its province, and interpret its language according to what it means, rendering unto poetry the things that are designed for poetry, and unto prose what belongs to prose. End quote. Sermon, page 554. End footnote. This is surely a question of great importance. From an early period in the history of the Church there have been two great systems of doctrine in perpetual conflict. The one begins with God, the other with man. The one has for its object the vindication of the divine supremacy and sovereignty in the salvation of men. The other has for its characteristic aim the assertion of the rights of human nature. It is specially solicitous that nothing should be held to be true which cannot be philosophically reconciled with the liberty and ability of man. It starts with a theory of free agency and of the nature of sin, to which all the anthropological doctrines of the Bible must be made to conform. Its great principles are, first, that all sin consists in sinning, that there can be no moral character but in moral acts, Secondly, that the power to the contrary is essential to free agency, that a free agent may always act contrary to any influence not destructive of his freedom, which can be brought to bear upon him. Thirdly, that ability limits responsibility, that men are responsible only so far as they have adequate power to do what is required of them, or that they are responsible for nothing not under the control of the will. From these principles it follows that there can be no such thing as original righteousness, that is, a righteousness in which man was originally created. Whatever moral character he had must have been the result of his own acts. Neither can there be any original sin, i.e. an innate, hereditary, sinful corruption of nature. Whatever effect Adam's apostasy may have had upon himself or on his posterity, whether it left his nature uninjured, and merely changed unfavourably his circumstances, or whether our nature was thereby deteriorated, so as to be prone to sin, it was not itself rendered morally corrupt or sinful. Adam was in no such sense the head and representative of his race, that his sin is the ground of our condemnation. Every man, according to this system, stands his probation for himself, and is not under condemnation until he voluntarily transgresses some known law, for it is only such transgression that falls under the category of sin. In regeneration, according to the principles above stated, there cannot be the production of a new moral nature, principle or disposition, as the source of holy exercises. That change must consist in some act of the soul, something which lies within the sphere of its own power, some act of the will, or some change subject to the will. The influence by which regeneration is affected must be something which can be effectually resisted in the utmost energy of its operation. This being the case, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of men must of necessity be given up. With these views of the nature and liberty of man is connected a corresponding view of the moral government of God. Sin has entered the world because it could not be prevented in a moral system. God counteracts and restrains it by every means in his power consistent with the continuance of that system. The obstacle to its extirpation is the free will of man, and the obstacle to its forgiveness is the license which would thereby be given to transgression. As God governs his rational creatures by motives, the work of Christ is a device to meet both these difficulties. 
It presents a powerful motive to man to forsake sin, and makes such an exhibition of God's displeasure against sin as answers in place of its punishment as a means of moral impression. The work of Christ was not a satisfaction to law and justice in the proper sense of those terms. Justice in God is simply benevolence guided by wisdom. The acceptance of the sinner is the act of a sovereign dispensing with the demands of the law. The righteousness of Christ is not imputed to believers, but as the sin of Adam was the occasion of certain evils coming on his race, so the righteousness of Christ is the occasion of good to his people. From these theoretical views, others of a practical nature necessarily follow. Conviction of sin must accommodate itself to the theory that there is no sin but in the voluntary transgression of known law. A sense of helplessness must be modified by the conviction of ability to repent and believe, to change our own heart and to keep all God's commands. Faith must regard Christ's work as a governmental display of certain divine attributes. Such directions as receive Christ, come to him, trust in him, commit the keeping of the soul to him, naturally give place under this system to the exhortation submit to God, determine to keep his commands, make choice of him in preference to the world. The view which this system presents of the plan of salvation, of the relation of the soul to Christ, of the nature and office of faith, modifies and determines the whole character of experimental religion. The system antagonistic to the one just described has for its object the vindication of the supremacy of God in the whole work of man's salvation, both because he is in fact supreme, and because man, being in fact utterly ruined and helpless, no method of recovery which does not so regard him is suited to his relation to God, or can be made to satisfy the necessities of his nature. This system does not exalt a theory of morals or of liberty over the scriptures as a rule by which they are to be interpreted. It accommodates its philosophy to the facts revealed in the divine word, as the Bible plainly teaches that man was created holy, that he is now born in sin, that when renewed by the Holy Ghost he receives a new nature, it admits the doctrine of concreated holiness, innate sin, and of infused or inherent grace. It acknowledges Adam as the head and representative of his posterity, in whom we had our probation, in whom we sinned and fell, so that we come into the world under condemnation, being born the children of wrath and deriving from him a nature not merely diseased, weakened or predisposed to evil, but which is itself, as well as all the motions thereof, truly and properly sin. It admits that by this innate, hereditary, moral depravity, men are altogether indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, so that their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. It recognizes justice, as distinguished from benevolence, to be an essential attribute of God, an attribute which renders the punishment of sin necessary not merely as a means of moral impression, but for its own sake. It therefore regards the work of Christ as designed to satisfy justice and to fulfill the demands of the law by his perfect obedience to its precepts, and by enduring its penalty in the room and stead of sinners. His righteousness is so imputed to believers that their justification is not merely the act of a sovereign dispensing with law, but the act of a judge declaring the law to be satisfied. Regarding man in his natural state, as spiritually dead and helpless, this system denies that regeneration is the sinner's own act, or that it consists of any change within his power to effect, or that he can prepare himself thereto, or cooperate in it. 
it is a change in the moral state of the soul, the production of a new nature, and is effected by the mighty power of God, the soul being the subject and not the agent of the change thereby produced. It receives a new life, which, when imparted, manifests itself in all appropriate holy acts. This life is sustained by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to whose influence all right exercises are to be referred. Salvation is thus, in its provision, application, and consummation, entirely of grace. Conviction of sin under this system is more than remorse for actual transgressions, it is also a sense of the thorough depravity of the whole nature, penetrating far beneath the acts of the soul, affecting its permanent moral states, which lie beyond the reach of the will, and a sense of helplessness is more than a conviction of the stubbornness of the will, it is a consciousness of an entire want of power to change those inherent moral states in which our depravity principally consists, and a consequent persuasion that we are absolutely dependent on God. Christ is not regarded in this system as simply rendering it consistent in God to bestow blessings upon sinners, so that we can come to the Father of ourselves with a mere obeisance to the Lord Jesus for having opened the door. Christ is declared to be our righteousness and life. We are united to him not merely in feeling, but by covenant and vitality by his Spirit, so that the life which we live is Christ living in us. He is, therefore, our all, our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, and consequently what the sinner is called upon to do in order to be saved is not merely to submit to God as his sovereign or to make choice of God as his portion. That indeed he does, but the specific act by which he is saved is receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. Hence, neither benevolence, nor philanthropy, nor any other principle of natural piety is the governing motive of the believer's life, but the love of Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Whether the believer lives, he lives unto the Lord, or whether he dies, he dies unto the Lord, so that living or dying he is the Lord's. Who, for this end, both died and rose again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. There are three leading characteristics of this system by which it is distinguished from that to which it stands opposed. The latter is characteristically rational. It seeks to explain everything so as to be intelligible to the speculative understanding. The former is confessedly mysterious. The apostle pronounces the judgment of God to be unsearchable and his ways past finding out, as they are specially exhibited in the doctrines of redemption and in the dispensations of God towards our race. The origin of sin, the fall of man, the relation of Adam to his posterity, the transmission of his corrupt nature to all descended from him by ordinary generation, the consistency of man's freedom with God's sovereignty, the process of regeneration, the relation of the believer to Christ and other doctrines of the like kind, do not admit of philosophical explanation. They cannot be dissected and mapped off so as that the points of contact and mode of union with all other known truths can be clearly understood, nor can God's dealings with our race be all explained on the common-sense principles of moral government. The system which Paul taught was not a system of common sense, but of profound and awful mystery. The second distinguishing characteristic of this system is that its whole tendency is to exalt God and to humble man. It does not make the latter feel that he is the great end of all things, or that he has his destiny in his own hands. It asks, Who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counsellor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? 
God's supremacy, the Apostle teaches us, is seen in his permitting our race to fall in Adam, and sin thus by one man to pass on all men, so that by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. It is seen in the nature of the plan of salvation, which excludes all merit on the part of those who are saved, and takes for granted their entire helplessness. It is still more clearly manifested in God's administration of this economy of mercy, in its gradual revelation, in its being so long confined to one nation, in its being now made known to one people and not to another, in its being applied where it is known to the salvation of some, and to the greater condemnation of others, and in the sovereignty which presides over the selection of the vessels of mercy. It is not the wise, the great, or the noble whom God calls, but the foolish, the base, and those that are not, that they who glory should glory in the Lord. Thirdly, this system represents God as himself the end of all his works, both in creation and in redemption. It is not the universe but God, not the happiness of creatures but the infinitely higher end of the divine glory, which is contemplated in all these revelations and dispensations. For of him, through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory for ever. Amen. It is an undeniable historical fact that this system underlies the piety of the Church in all ages. It is the great granitic formation whose peaks tower towards heaven, and draw thence the waters of life, and in whose capacious bosom repose those green pastures in which the great shepherd gathers and sustains his flock. It has withstood all changes, and it still stands. Heat and cold, snow and rain, gentle abrasion and violent convulsions, leave it as it was. It cannot be moved. In our own age and country this system of doctrine has had to sustain a renewed conflict. It has been assailed by argument, by ridicule, by contempt. It has been pronounced absurd, obsolete, effete, powerless. It has withstood logic, indignation, wit, and even the hexagon. Still it stands. Footnote. The New York Independent, in a notice of our former review, objected to the tone of confidence with which we wrote on this subject. How can we help it? A man behind the walls of Gibraltar, or of Ehrenbreitstein, cannot, if he would, tremble at the sight of a single knight, however gallant or well-appointed he may be. His confidence is due to his position, not to a consciousness of personal strength. A man at sea with a stout ship under him has a sense of security in no measure founded upon himself. A Christian surrounded by learned sceptics may be deeply sensible of his own weakness, and yet serenely confident in the strength of his cause. We then, who are within these old walls which have stood for ages, even from the beginning, who can look around and see the names of all generations of saints inscribed on those walls, and who feel the solid rock of God's word under their feet, must be excused for a feeling of security. We invite our critic to come within this strong tower, and to place his feet upon this same rock, and he will find how strength-inspiring it is, even though his personal humility should be increased by the experiment. We beg of him at least not to confound confidence in a system which has been held for ages with self-confidence. Our independent brethren seem to have lost the idea of the church. Some of them have even written against the article in the creed which affirms faith in that doctrine. They appear to think that every man stands by himself, that nothing is ever settled, that every theological discussion is a controversy between individuals. But there is such a thing as the church, 
and that church has a faith, and against that faith no one man, and no angel, is any fair match. End footnote. What then is to be done? Professor Park, with rare ingenuity, answers, quote, Let us admit its truth, but maintain that it does not differ from the other system. There are two theologies, one for the feelings, the other for the intellect, or what may be made to mean precisely the same thing, two forms of one and the same theology, the one precise and definite, designed to satisfy the intelligence, the other vague and intense, adapted to the feelings. Both are true, for at bottom they are the same. It is in vain to deny this old theology. It is in the Bible, in the creeds, in the liturgies, in the hymns of the church, and in the hearts of God's people. It will not do to laugh at it any longer. It has too much power. We must treat it with respect and call it doctrine when we mean only images, illustrations, and intense expressions. End quote. We are now prepared, we think, for a fair statement of the status questionis. The question is not which of the antagonistic systems of theology above described is true, or whether either is true. Nor is the question which of the two Professor Park believes. His own faith has nothing to do with the question. So far as the present discussion is concerned, he may hold neither of these systems in its integrity, or he may hold the one, which we believe to be true, or he may hold the opposite one. The point to be considered is not so much a doctrinal one as a principle of interpretation, a theory of exegesis and its application. The question is whether there is any correct theory of interpretation by which the two systems above referred to can be harmonized. Are they two theologies equally true, the one the theology of the intellect, the other the theology of the feelings? In other words, are they different forms of one and the same theology? We take the greater interest in this question because this is evidently the last arrow in the quiver. Everything else has been tried and failed, and if this fail, there is an end of this series of conflicts. Whatever is to come after must be of a different kind and from a different quarter. We propose then, first, to show that the above statement of the question presents fairly and clearly the real point at issue. Secondly, to consider the success of this attempt to harmonize these conflicting systems of theology. And thirdly, to examine the nature of the theory by which that reconciliation has been attempted. That the above statement of the question presents clearly and correctly the real point at issue, we argue in the first place from the distinct avowals of the author. He expresses the hope that, quote, many various forms of faith will yet be blended into a consistent knowledge like the colours in a single ray. Many pious men, he says, are distressed by the apparent contradictions in our best theological literature, and for their sake another practical lesson developed in the discourse is the importance of exhibiting the mutual consistency between all the expressions of right feeling. The discrepancies so often lamented are not fundamental but superficial, and are easily harmonized by exposing the one self-consistent principle which lies at their basis, end quote. Over and over it is asserted in the discourse that while the intellectual theology is accurate not in its spirit only, but in its letter also, the emotive theology involves the substance of truth, although when literally interpreted it may or may not be false. The purport of one entire head in the sermon is to prove that the one theology is precisely the same with the other in its real meaning, though not always in its form, that the expressions of right feeling, if they do contradict each other, when unmodified, 
can and must be so explained as to harmonize both with each other and with the decisions of the judgment. The sermon repeats again and again that it is impossible to believe contradictory statements, quote, without qualifying some of them so as to prevent their subverting each other, end quote. That the reason, quote, being the circumspect power which looks before and after does not allow that of these conflicting statements each can be true, save in a qualified sense, and that such statements must be qualified by disclosing the fundamental principle in which they all agree for substance of doctrine, the principle which will rectify one of the discrepant expressions by explaining it into an essential agreement with the other. End quote. The sermon then was designed to harmonize those apparent contradictions in doctrinal statements by which pious men are distressed, it was intended to teach that the two theologies, the intellectual and emotive, although they may differ in form, agree in substance of doctrine. Accordingly, he says, quote, Pitiable indeed is the logomachy of polemic divines. We have somewhere read that the Berkeleyans, who deny the existence of matter, differed more in terms than in opinion from their opponents, who affirmed the existence of matter, for the former uttered with emphasis, we cannot prove that there is an outward world, and then whispered, we are yet compelled to believe that there is one. Whereas the latter, uttered with emphasis, we are compelled to believe in an outer world, and then whispered, yet we cannot prove that there is one. This is not precisely accurate, still it serves to illustrate the amount of difference which exists between the reviewer and the author of the humble convention sermon. End quote. And further, it is said expressly, quote, one aim of the sermon was to show that all creeds, which are allowable, can be reconciled with each other, end quote. Precisely so. Thus we understand the matter. We do not overlook the word allowable in this statement. It was doubtless intended to do good service. We did not understand the sermon to advocate entire scepticism and to teach that whatever may be affirmed can with equal propriety be denied nor was it understood to teach that all religions are true, being different forms of expression for the same generic religious sentiment. Nor did we understand our author to advocate that latitudinarianism which embraces and harmonizes all nominally Christian creeds. He says expressly, quote, There is a line of separation which cannot be crossed between those systems which insert and those which omit the doctrine of justification by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. End quote. The sermon, therefore, was not regarded as a plea for Socinianism as an allowable form of Christianity. But it was understood to teach that, quote, all allowable creeds can be reconciled with each other, end quote. The only question is what creeds are regarded as coming within this limitation. That the two great antagonistic systems which we have attempted to characterize are considered as belonging to this category is evident because these are the systems which from the beginning to the end of the sermon and still more clearly in the reply are brought into view and compared with each other. To this fact we appeal as the second proof that the statement of the question at issue as given above is correct. The systems which our author attempts to reconcile are those we have described in the former part of this article. In the first place, the radical principles of one of those systems are distinctly presented in the sermon. Those principles, as before remarked, are that moral character is confined to acts, that liberty supposes power to the contrary, and that ability limits responsibility. These principles are all recognized in the following passages of the sermon, if we are capable of understanding the meaning of the author. 
after representing the convinced sinner as saying, quote, I long to heap infinite upon infinite and crown together all forms of self-reproach, for I am clad in sin as with a garment, I devour it as a sweet morsel, I breathe it, I live it, I am sin, etc. He adds, but when a theorist seizes at such living words as these and puts them into his vice and straightens them or crooks them into the dogma, that man is blamable before he chooses to do wrong, deserving of punishment for the involuntary nature which he has never consented to gratify, really sinful before he actually sins, then the language of emotion forced from its right place and treated as if it were part of a nicely measured syllogism hampers and confuses his reasonings until it is given to the use for which it was first intended and from which it never ought to have been diverted. End quote. Quote, it is said, however, that a passive nature, existing antecedently to all free action, is itself strictly, literally sinful. Then we must speak a new language and speak in prose of moral patience as well as of moral agents, of men besinned as well as sinners. For ex vi termini, sinners as well as runners must be active. We must have a new conscience which can decide on the moral character of moral conditions, as well as of elective preferences. A new law prescribing the very make of the soul, as well as the way in which the soul, when made, shall act. And a law which we transgress, for sin is a transgression of the law, in being before birth passively misshapen. We must also have a new Bible delineating a judgment scene in which some will be condemned not only on account of deeds which they have done in the body, but also for having been born with an involuntary proclivity to sin, and others will be rewarded not only for their conscientious conscious, love to Christ, but also for a blind nature inducing that love. We must, in fine, have an entirely different class of moral sentiments and have them disciplined by inspiration in an entirely different manner from the present. For now the feelings of all true men revolt from the assertion that a poor infant dying, if we may suppose it to die, before its first wrong preference, merits for its unavoidable nature that eternal punishment which is threatened, and justly, against even the smallest sin although it may seem paradoxical to affirm that a man may believe a proposition which he knows to be false, it is yet charitable to say that whatever any man may suppose himself to believe, he has in fact an inward conviction that all sin consists in sinning. There is comparatively little dispute on the nature of moral evil when the words relating to it are fully understood. End quote. As to the other points, we have such language as the following. Man's, quote, unvaried wrong choices imply a full, unremitted natural power of choosing right. The emotive theology, therefore, when it affirms this power, is correct both in matter and style, but when it denies this power it uses the language of intensity. It means the certainty of wrong preference by declaring the inability of right, and in its vivid sense of cannot for will not is accurate in substance, but not in form." End quote. One of the expressions put in the lips of the emotive theology, and which is pronounced correct both in matter and style, is, quote, If I had been as holy as I had power to be, then I had been perfect. End quote. Another is, I know thee that thou art not a hard master extracting of me duties which I have no power to discharge, but thou attemperest thy law to my strength, and at no time imposest upon me a heavier burden than thou at that very time makest me able to bear. 
In note F at the end of the sermon, it is said, quote, The pious necessarian has a good moral purpose in declaring that the present and future obligations of men do and will exceed their power. End quote. This, in the connection, implies that in the judgment of the writer, men's obligations do not exceed their power. Not only are these general principles thus recognized, but the two systems are compared very much in their details, and their harmony is exhibited by disclosing the fundamental principle in which they agree for substance of doctrine. The one system says, the sin of Adam is imputed to his posterity. The other says, the sin of Adam is not imputed to his posterity. The fundamental principle in which they agree is that the sin of Adam was the occasion of certain evils coming upon his race. The former statement is only an intense form of expressing this definite idea. The one system asserts that the nature of man since the fall is sinful, anterior to actual transgressions. The other says all sin consists in sinning. A passive nature existing antecedently to all free action cannot be sinful. Still, these declarations are consistent. Sinful in the former must be taken to mean prone to sin. Quote, this nature, as it certainly occasions sin, may be sometimes called sinful in a peculiar sense for the sake of intensity. End quote. The one system says that men since the fall are, while unrenewed, utterly indisposed, disabled and made opposite to all good, so that their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. The other asserts that such language is merely a, quote, vivid use of cannot for will not, accurate in substance though not in its form, end quote. The one teaches that the commands of God continue to bind those who are unable perfectly to keep them. The other asserts that unable here means unwilling because God always attempers his law to our strength. The one says that man is passive in regeneration, that he therein receives a new nature, a principle of grace which is the source of all holy exercises. The other repudiates the idea of, quote, a blind nature-inducing love, end quote, having a moral character, but it may be called holy as tending to holiness, just as, quote, for the sake of intensity, end quote, we may call that sinful which tends to sin. In like manner, the different representations concerning the work of Christ however apparently conflicting, are represented as different only in form. Thus, in regard to our relation to Adam, the consequences of his apostasy, the natural state of man, ability and inability, the nature of regeneration, the atonement of Christ, the justification of sinners before God, the statements of the two systems, are declared to be identical in meaning, however different in form, or a mode of statement is proposed which is made to comprehend both. We can hardly be mistaken, therefore, in saying that the design of the sermon is to show that both of these are allowable and may be reconciled. If anything is clear, either in the sermon or the reply, it is that these systems are represented as different modes of presenting one and the same theology, the one adapted to the feeling, the other to the intellect. If this is not the case, then Professor Park has failed to convey the most remote idea of his meaning to a multitude of minds, more or less accustomed to such discussions, and must be set down as either the most unfortunate or the most unintelligible writer of modern times. End of section 30